You are listening to Africa Rights Talk, a Center for Human Rights podcast series hosted by Tatenda Musinahama. Welcome to the conversation. With the situation we have, it goes a long way to question the credibility behind the activities of INEC because we have been told prior to now that elections will be done devoid of hitches and results will be transmitted electronically. We want to vote is our right as a citizen. We have that right to vote and vote. That's why we are here from 7 a.m. Up to now, we are not going anywhere to be vote. This episode marks the beginning of Season 5 of Africa Rights Talk as we normally explore human rights issues through conversations with academics, practitioners and activists. In this season, we will be taking time to listen to the stories of those individuals directly involved in the respective human rights issues. On February 25, 2023, Nigeria held presidential elections. Nigerian voters came out in their numbers to cast their ballots to select the next president after outgoing President Buhari stepped down. This was amidst a background of widespread unrest, insecurity and economic hardship. While the elections were initially mocked by a high voter turnout and mainly peaceful voting, they were marred by reports of vote buying, voter intimidation, attacks on polling units in certain areas and unpunctual officials along with accusations of outright fraud to compound issues with trust in the election. The Independent National Electoral Commission also failed to upload polling unit results to the viewing portal as previously assured would happen on election day. It is in light of these circumstances along ongoing developments that we recorded this episode to analyze the developments of these elections from a human rights lens. Welcome to this conversation of Africa Rights Talk, where we are going to be reflecting on the Nigerian elections for the 2023 year. Please introduce yourself to the listeners and the work that you do. Well, uh, thank you for having me on your podcast. My name is Christopher Isike, Professor of African Politics and International Relations in the Department of Political Sciences at the University of Pretoria. I am also a director of the African Center for the Study of the United States. It's a center that is committed to fostering knowledge-driven engagement between the United States and, and, and Africa. And our, our vision basically is to be the African premier knowledge creation hub in the fields of the studies of the United States of America and South Africa, Africa, US, you know, uh, cooperation. Basically, um, that's what I do at the University of Pretoria and who I am. I'm also president of the um, African Association of Political Science. Um, so I wear many hats and uh, I'm sure that uh, I would be able to answer your question today. Without further ado, I would like us to get right into why we're here today. Why is analyzing the trends on the 2023 Nigerian elections so important to the region, the continent, and globally? Well, well, it's it's important because uh, Nigeria is um, it's a strategically uh, important country geopolitically, and and even in terms of demography, Nigeria is the biggest uh, democracy in Africa. Uh, the biggest democracy, black democracy in the world, um, because of its sheer uh, size and population, uh, 
um, if Nigeria gets it right or wrong in an electioneering process, in a democratization process as this one, um, it would affect not just its immediate neighbors in, in West Africa and the continent at large, but also um, the entire world, given the fact that um, you hardly find any country in the world where you don't have Nigerians. And these people, this Nigerian diaspora, um, have very well established uh, you know, social networks that also aid migration to these different countries. So a conflict in Nigeria on account of you know, uh, mismanaged elections or uh, that result in political violence, for example, would have um, you know, um, implications uh, for these different countries of the world that you have uh, Nigerians. So um, for that reason, and especially in, in a continent where democracy has been declined, of late, if we talk about the coups, the military coups we've had in West Africa, where Nigeria is uh, located geographically, would understand why um, Nigeria getting its rights in this process um, is crucial uh, to foster and promote, uh, you know, the democracy. So those are the reasons why uh, everyone in the world has taken an interest in, in these elections, uh, both Nigerians themselves as citizens, as well as, you know, the international community. I chuckled a little bit when you talked about Nigeria being a democracy there. I guess this conversation will help us understand and poke at the different elements and facets of democracy in Nigeria, especially with regards to these elections. There has been a clear hunger for change in Nigeria, and this can be seen through the turnout on this year's elections. In 2019, independent National Electoral Commission projected to have about 84 million people registered to vote in 2023 and received 12.4 million new voters, taking registered voters to 96 million. So bearing this in mind, is Nigeria capable of radical economic and political change, especially following um, the elections? What is the state of the electoral process in Nigeria? And uh, what is your assessment of the electoral process, seeing as, you know, the elections have happened, seeing as the developments were just going on, as we were all, you know, reading the trends and understanding the trends. What do you think of um, the electoral process? And does Nigeria need an overhaul of the system in terms of how it administers its elections? If so, can you tell us why you would say that? <laughs> You've asked so many questions in one. Um, let me start with the one about characterizing Nigeria as a democracy. Well, look, um, what is a democracy? Uh, you know, democracy is only democracy when it is practiced the exact way that the West practices it um, can be problematic. But even at that, it doesn't mean that we must copy, you know, bad examples, right? Uh, but Nigeria can be said to be an electoral democracy, just like most countries in Africa, where we focus more on the procedures than the substantive aspects uh, of, the dem of, of democracy uh, in terms of what it delivers, uh, you know, for for citizens, a problem um, has tended to the, the idea of electoral democracy focusing on the, 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 the process uh, rather than outcomes has also uh, empowered uh, politicians in Africa in this instance to focus on, on just winning at all costs, even if it means, um, you know, murdering the people. And, and, and pushing the country to the brink uh, and not even having any country at the end of the day. They don't care so long as they win those positions. It is a function of how politicians in, in Africa generally and Nigeria in this instance understand the states in Africa and the, uh, the, 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 the governance notion that comes out of that. So I've always said that 
the state in Africa um, was not, you know, established by the Europeans when they did establish those states in the in the in the, in the 40s and 50s and 60s. They were not established as development machines. Uh, they were exploitation machines. They were instruments that facilitated exploitation of Africa's resources, both human and material, so Europe, right? And so that kind of exploitative notion and essence of the state produces a notion of governance that is also exploitative, parasitic, and corrupt. And at, at the independence, most uh, states who actually then inherited this understanding of state and governance, where leaders see the state as an opportunity for self-enrichment, exploit uh, as many people as they can, oppress as many as they can, and just look after themselves. So this is what we have grappled with, this, this whole uh, purpose. So I, I think that until we, we, we get to the drawing board where we ask ourselves whether these states in the continent are fit for purpose, and whether we should not rethink and remake or repurpose them, until we do that, and we will continue to falter in terms of what kind of political system we want to practice, what kind of state do we want to have? Do we want to have the uh, political state or we want to have the social state? You know, the political state is that state that focuses on the interest of elites, the regime security, as opposed to the social state that concerns itself with delivering service to the citizens that, uh, you know, uh, enacts the, the real meaning of or, or the real purpose of the state, which is to bring about the greatest happiness of the greatest number of people for the common good. So when a state exists for the common good, then it will produce a governorship and leadership a spirit and acumen that is developmental. And then it will be very easy to say, look, we do not need a liberal kind of democracy like the one you practice in America where relationships are commodified and the state removes itself as much as possible from delivering uh, you know, basic services to, to citizens, right? Um, you would probably be looking at a social kind of democracy, what we call social democracy, as you have in the Nordic countries where they prioritize people, they prioritize human security, and then if you look at their development profile, they do better in the development index than countries like the United States, where you have high levels of illiteracy compared to Sweden, for instance, compared to Denmark, and even New Zealand that practices a social variant of democracy. They are all these countries are all liberal countries, but they practice a social variant. So Nigeria is none of Nigeria is it's not a social democracy. It pretends to practice a liberal kind of democracy, but that's on paper. In actual sense, it practices what is referred to by scholars as electoral democracy or procedural democracy, just focusing on the process of getting into power and then using that to rubber stamp as a democracy. I think that's what we experience in Africa. But even within that, within that framework of an electoral democracy, there is hope for eventually transforming to get the kind of state we want, to get the kind of governance we want, if the people are able to act in their own enlightened self-interest and take responsibility for the kind of leadership that they elect. Now, coming back to your question on whether um, you know Nigeria is capable of radical economic and political change, it is possible and it is also difficult. Possible because we have seen what happened in these elections where Nigerians realized that the state actually belongs to them. This whole idea of the state as this thing that is far, um, that is elite-driven and run, and, and that we must as citizens be docile um, and cut out whatever you know they, they want us to, to do and be, um, it doesn't really have to be so. And, and so you have seen uh, young people, especially, come out to reclaim their sovereignty, their power, and um, they tried to do that in this election, but the, the elite, the establishment, um, did everything they could to try and scuttle that. And to that extent, you say it's it's a no, and that's why I said it's difficult. There, there are there are ways of overcoming these challenges, and I think that the, the beginning is the political awakening, the political consciousness that you must have as, as as people to say we are capable of reclaiming 
our space. We are capable of reclaiming power. Power belongs to us. We, the state is what we citizens make of it. The minute you have that awareness, the next phase will be how do we then reclaim? What are the strategies that are there for us to reclaim? And I'm so impressed with the fact that uh, there's not been any violence yet, violence mistreated by young people in Nigeria, those who feel really upset, angry, and cheated, but have not you know, fallen into the trap of coming out uh, like they did with the answers to for, for them to get shot at, you know, and killed, and, and nothing really happened. So I think that to that extent, I'll say that there is hope that uh, things will change. The political awakening is there. I think you also asked the question around the state of the electoral process in Nigeria. So as you know, the results were announced, and there's a lot of unhappiness because people feel that the results were doctored um, and that the elections were stage managed by the ruling party. The Independent National Electoral Commission, the electoral management body in Nigeria, did not follow its own rules in terms of uploading results for people to see them in real time. And that was a turning point for many people to decide to participate in, in these elections because people have always felt that, you know, the elections don't count, their votes don't count. But the INEC um, spent a good part of last year you know, convincing Nigerians that with the introduction of the Beavers technology, that they would be uh, able to contain those fears, that they, they would be able to deliver uh, the results in record time, in real time, and people would be able to see, you know, so there was no cause for alarm. And that gave people confidence because elections are usually rigged apart from ballot box uh, stealing and uh, ballot box stuffing, voter suppression and intimidation, which you referenced. Apart from these, the, the actual rigging of elections in countries like Nigeria is done during the counting, that the coalition centers where results are changed. So the many people understood that was a, there was a machine, the Beavers machine, that would capture the votes at the polling units and then upload them into an INEC portal for public viewing and so people can see the votes as they trickle in, just like you would see in the United States, for example. People had confidence and people really went all out to vote. And then Interestingly, the INEC didn't follow that particular rule, the, the particular rule that instilled confidence in its processes in, in the whole pro election management. They, they didn't do that. They have said that it was because of technical glitches. Those have not been explained. The system uh, were test run. They, they had a dry run and they assured the country, they assured the president, they assured the international community that they were ready to do the election. So they have not yet explained what glitches uh, made them, prevented them from doing that. But between the time when these their systems went offline around 9, 10 p.m. in Nigeria and in following morning, in fact, at 12 o'clock when the INEC chair, uh, you know, then convened a meeting to address the nation, that's about 12 hours, a lot had happened. There had been a lot of doctoring of results, change of uh, ballot papers, and these have been displayed everywhere. The evidence is overwhelming to show that a lot of doctoring took place. And the results they announced, you can see from them, from these results, that there's a lot of doctoring. You can see some of the results where two states that are neighboring states have the same statistics in terms of registered voters, in terms of spoiled ballots, in terms of those who voted, exactly the same thing. That's a little too much for coincidence. So my assessment, therefore, of the electoral process is that the elections were flawed. The election were mismanaged by the INEC um, is that they failed to do what they were supposed to do. They, they, they actually ended up disenfranchising Nigerians and compromising the elections in ways that, you know, cast aspersions on the integrity of the elections. But that is the one side. On the other side, and, and I've actually labeled these elections as a tale of many contradictions. So on that side, I've said you know, what the issues were, the logistic problems that INEC had, which they shouldn't have had after over 600 plus billion in, and, and four years to prepare for this kind of election. But the other side of it is the, the, of the coin is that the elections also showed a victory 
you know, for Nigerians because they came out in large numbers to vote. You, you reference that there were about 93 to 96 million registered voters. 87 million of them collected their voters' cards um, and that was an indicator of interest to vote and they came out in large numbers. They withstood the voter suppression in places like Lagos, in River State, in Kaduna, in Imo State. You know, they, they withstood all of these. They withstood the rain, they withstood uh, the sun and they even organized themselves, brought food and even gave uh, drinks and water to pulling off officers to, to ensure that everything went smoothly. And so they came out, they expressed themselves, they defended their votes, but um, the system, the, the establishment, uh, in my view, messed them up. Uh, and so that is where we are um, at this point. I have a follow-up question and I know we're short for time, but I think it would be important for you to just indicate or highlight ways in which we can ensure for Nigeria and perhaps the rest of African countries at large that we ensure a fair, fair and transparent election process and bearing in mind all the things that you mentioned about what went wrong in this election. So what can we do moving forward to ensure a transparent and um, you know fair and honest election process? Okay, look, in Nigeria and most of Africa, um, the, the elections are rigged when the results are in the, in the counting, the collation centers, okay? Um, so um, I think that we must begin to move towards digitalization of the electoral process, uh, the use of technology to manage the process. I think we need to remove as many people as possible from the whole process. So, for example, imagine I'd said this to someone, uh, it looks far-fetched, but it is very, very possible, very, very doable. So, when people register to vote and you have an accreditation machine, the Beavers in the Nigerian case, that, that is able to identify actual voters who are registered and then clear them to vote. Now, after the vote, that now that voting should not be done, in my view, if you want to digitalize, shouldn't then be done in a ways that we've been doing them in, in the ballot box. If we can have ATM machines spread across the entire countries, we can have voting machines, you know, spread across the entire country. So, in fact, if you have those kind of machines, the machines should be done in such a way that they can actually validate uh, prospective voters and then clear them to vote. And then you just go there, like you do the ATM machine, you select how much you want, who you want, what you want, and you just, uh, you know, uh, click and, and you vote. And that goes into a system, a national system, um, that would uh, then transmit results. And these elections, that's one. So secondly, the elections do not have to happen in one day, right? It's a huge logistical to organize elections in just one day. Actually, not just when, when, when you are combining three elections, the presidential, the House of Representatives, and the Senate. So elections can be, such elections can be, say the presidential elections can be, and, and House of uh, Reps and uh, Senate elections can be done over two days, three days period, and even maybe extending to a week for maybe early voters, um, um, you know, uh, senior citizens coming out to vote on separate days. Um, uh, they can be ballot mailing like we do in the United States. These things are possible in Africa. The idea that, oh, we're in Africa, we don't we don't have technology, we don't have internet is not true. These beavers machine that were deployed in Nigeria did not need any form of internet. They were done with technology and they could they, they really worked very well in terms of accrediting people, clearing them to vote. The problem was when it came to now using them to, to upload results to the um, IREV uh, that was supposed to uh, display the results in real time, that was where they failed. And that failure is intentional on the part of the human beings that manage that process. These human beings were compromised. I've, I've listened to a tape where the governor of a state in Nigeria and in the, in the South was heard talking about how 
now he was going to be giving money in millions to INEC officials, polling units, volunteers, you know, and even the police and the military, they were all involved in this. So to avoid, you know, these kinds of things, we need to go the digitalization route. We need to remove as many people as possible so that you reduce the incidence of, of people being corrupted. But even when you do that, there will still be human beings managing that process. And I'm sure you are thinking of asking me that question. It will still be human beings who will manage those machines and ensure that the figures are not are not, are not tampered with or that people will not go and hack into those systems. Those things are possible. But it goes to, to, to therefore answer this weakness. It goes to my earlier you know, uh, statement about why we exist as a state and whether we have discussed it and whether we have negotiated and agreed on the kind of state we want to have uh, where everybody will be equal, we'll, have, uh, we'll adopt political systems like a social democratic system that work for everybody. Um, we'll adopt things like rotational democracy or constitutional democracy where every interest is represented. Once we have agreed on those things and those who manage those diversities as governors, once they do what they're supposed to do, you'll find that, that this, the need to even go and pursue power and steal power will not arise because political office service is work. It's a lot of work. So if you want to work for people, why do you need to kill people? Why do you need to steal power for you to work for people? It's like, if I'm going to give you money, I will not call you and beg you to give you money. I'll wait for you to come beg me to give you money, right? So once the purpose is clear, you have less people interested because power is rotated, it's not owned by anybody. All citizens are equal, some are not more equal than others. If we solve these diversity issues, because we now have a state system that everyone can, can believe in, and those who we elect actually then manage our diversities the way they should by the book, you will not even have need to go and digitalize uh, elections in the first place, because first of all, it will be a civic responsibility to make sure you get the right people to get into leadership position. It will not be something that anybody wants to force themselves to do. Um, when Barack Obama contested for elections in 2008, I wish you can Google and you see him, what he looked like. Four years later, compare. The man aged significantly. I'm not talking about a few gray hairs. He aged significantly, not just in terms of the being adorned with gray hair, but even became very wrinkled. Is that That's because the, the presidency of the United States is a serious business. Uh, it's, not for, it's not for people that are cognitively deficient or physically... Uh, incapable of, of taking on the responsibility or, or to unhealthy to do so. So that for me is the long-term solution. The short-term solution will be making the effort to digitalize and for political parties to engage in political uh, education as much as, as they can. The, the change is possible. We saw it happen in, in Zambia where a fringe candidate, you know, defeated an incumbent president, Ichilema, and he's today is the president of, of, of Zambia and he's not disappointing, right? We also saw it in Kenya. Right. So these things are really, really, really possible. Um, and uh, the way these be, the elections have been done in Nigeria, the way that the, the Labour Party has uh, transformed the, uh, the political space and the, the number of votes that they got for themselves, even though the, the results were doctored. I mean, because before you can give uh, the Labour Party that much number of votes, yeah, that means that they actually got twice that that total. Right. So but that that is it says a lot about you know, the force of the people. And this change is not going to come from the elite. It's going to come from the people. And we're beginning to see elements of these changes taking place across the continent. There are always regional differences in Nigeria, and we've seen this throughout the course of history. One of these differences is um, embedded in religion or faith. And the other one is just um, regional ethnicity. And we found that the presidential tickets were influenced by regional and religious agreements with Tunubu um, being a Muslim Southwest North ticket, while Peter Obi was Christian Muslim Southeast ticket. 
and also influenced by the agreement that existed among Nigerians, at least the political elites, that there would be a transfer from Christian to Muslim and also from North to South. Is that still one of the drivers of the outcome of this election? And do you think that is the reason why the elections came out the way they did? Well, yes. Um, um, Religion, ethnicity, region, um, these are primordial um, factors that have driven Nigerian politics, you know, from time. And uh, these are also products of colonialism, the early political development of the country. They continue to define politics, no doubt about about those. And you talked about the the way that the candidates uh, picked their um, candidates. Um, You know, in the ruling APC, for example, you had Bola Tinubu picking Shetima as his vice president from the north, um, who was a Muslim like him. And um, you had uh, Peter Obi, a Christian from the south, picking uh, a Muslim, uh, Dati Baba Ahmed from the north. You had, um, what was his name, Atiku Abubakar picking um, uh, Okoa um, from the south, a Christian. So these things are not necessarily uh, bad in themselves. So those are the kind, those are the diversities that I was talking about, okay? Um, the issue, the challenge is always how you manage them, all right? They have to be managed. Uh, they, they, they can't be wished away. They can't be legislated away. So they have to be managed. Now, the mismanagement of diversity, especially uh, in the last eight years of the current uh, ruling party, actually contributed to the heightening of the consciousness around this divide. Okay? Um, and then when the ruling party decided to now go for a Muslim-Muslim candidate, it actually made them more unpopular because um, the, the sharing of power, although it's not in the constitution, between the North and South period, rotation um, and the understanding that if you have a Muslim president, you have a Christian vice president, if you have a, a, a Christian president, you have a Muslim vice president, are part of the management of diversity that, that has kept the, the nation together uh, since then. Because we have a national question challenge of who is a Nigerian, uh, a citizenship inequality between the North and the South. Okay. Um, and, and these are real issues where some people feel more Nigerian than others. Um, and so people who belong to minority ethnic groups, for instance, are not, they don't see themselves and are also not seen or treated as citizens. Some part of the country feel that the right to rule is theirs and that they can always determine um, who who becomes president. And the North especially has been doing that. Um, and I've told people that, you know, uh, for them, we need to make a distinction between what I call electoral sophistry uh, versus political sophistry. So the North is, is, is electorally sophisticated. So they have that electoral sophistry in terms of the fact that they can use religion and region as a basis for rallying around one candidate and then using their numbers to vote for those candidates and team victory for, for those candidates. Um, they've done that very well um, since the history of the country. Uh, but then we go to the second stage of sophistication, which is, which is uh, the political sophistry that I'm talking about. And then you begin to ask, okay, uh, you have electoral sophistry to have political power, but to what end? For what purpose? Is it having the political power for the sake of it and bragging about it, or just the psychological satisfaction that your brother or your sister is there? What is the implication? What does it mean if that power cannot be used to develop you? Because the northern part of the country occupy the lowest rungs of the development ladder in Nigeria. If you talk about education, if you talk about health, talk about the economy, if you talk about uh, poverty, if you talk about um, and even recently, if you talk about you know violent conflict emanating from um, uh, from social uh, instability, the North comes first in all of these development challenges. 
So the question then is, what is the purpose of having this electoral system where you can organize yourself and win elections, have power, but you use it, you don't use it to develop yourself? So, so that's something that we, uh, we, you know, the North at some point need to really ask themselves. And I think that they started asking themselves these questions. And it brings me to your question about whether this played a role um, in these elections. I would not say that ethnicity or religion did not play a role, okay? Because obviously there were people who voted along those lines. It will always be so. But I think that um, 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 even from the doctored results that we saw, Nigerians are beginning to be enlightened and rising above those primordial sentiments that actually used to divide them by the politicians. The people themselves have lived together side by side intermarried. For example, I'm from the south of the country. I grew up in the north of the country. Okay. Uh, it will interest you to know that Hausa is the only Nigerian language that I speak. I don't speak my own Isoko language, which is uh, from the Delta state of Nigeria. I speak Hausa. That's the only language I understand till date. I can still speak it because I grew up there. Right. The people have intermarried, the people interact, they know that they can relate. But when politicians have their squabbles, they then come back to the people and use them and find the embers of ethnicity and religion to put wedges between them. And this is what they've done successfully. Um, with Peter Obi emerging as the uh, candidate of the Labour Party, someone from the East um, who has never, I mean, the East has never had the opportunity to have a shot at the presidency, at least um, um, since um, um, 1964, apart from when uh, Aguirre Rossi was a military leader in a normal democracy, let's say since uh, 1983, when um, the, the, the first republic, democratic republic started, we have not had anybody from the East become president. Uh, but good enough for Peter Obi, he indicated clearly that that should not be a reason for people voting him in, so advocated that he should be voted on a account of his competence, his character, and his capability to deliver on the job. And he went to, to different parts of the country, asked a simple question. Is there any part of the country where bread is sold cheaper because you are from that region? Do you buy bread cheaper because you are a Christian or a Muslim? The answer was a resounding no. So we all suffer from mismanagement, for poor governance. Therefore, to solve our problems, we need to ensure that we elect people that are capable. That was a simple message that he really passed around that resonated. With, with people. And if you look at the doctored results, you will find that he won across the entire country, in the across the regions, across religions. Of course, he had strongholds, you know, but he won among Christians in the north, uh, but he won states that were dominantly Muslims, like the Nasarawa state, for, for example. He won in Lagos, that was a, uh, you know, a Western state, if you like, right? So I think that this is why I say there is hope. These particular elections, uh, if the results eventually come out, you will see that Nigerians have grown wiser, have defied these traditional fault lines of politics, which are not really um, the people's doing. These are things that are invented, reinvented, and perpetuated by, you know, a criminal class of politicians. Um, who, who don't understand why the state of Nigeria exists and who don't understand why governance is there in the first place. They see it as an opportunity to self-enrich and help their friends. And when they are, feel like it, uh, advance religious and ethnic uh, agendas, which eventually are not actually uh, productive. So, so that's, that's how I would answer the question. All right. Thank you. Let's imagine for the purpose of this conversation that Nigeria as a utopia an electoral process is not plagued with insecurity, banditry, shortage of cash and voter suppression. Would there be a different outcome to the election? And has it been recorded that the three candidates pulled their own shares of the electorates with minimal margins? Let me answer the last question first. Um, the results, doctored as they are, and you, you know that I keep saying doctored as they are because they were doctored. 
Doctored as they are, you could still see that each of the candidates pulled their own shares of the electorate um, and the margins were not that much. And, and this is one of the contradictions of this election. 94 million, uh, 93 million, sorry, registered to vote. 87 million collected their PVCs. Collection of PVCs is an indication of interest to vote, right? And, and there has never been any time in the history of Nigeria where people uh, showed interest in elections as they did in these particular elections. And all of that, that interest was ignited by the candidacy of uh, Mr. Peter Obi, who on account of his early messages as soon as he declared for labor, uh, saw the registration of an addition of 11 million new voters into the voters' registers list. 11 million. Now, these 11 million people didn't come out to vote because at the end of the day, it, it just over 23, 24 million people voted in these elections. Now, it either means that uh, in like in 2019, we had they had about 36, 37 percent of registered voters, and they did not even get up to half of this. Uh, those who collected the PVC, uh, I think they are about 50, 60 million uh, in the last election. But less than less than 37 percent of that voted, right? So it's either those numbers were lies, okay, or these numbers this time are lies. But I would believe that these numbers, in terms of those who actually came out to the, the registered voters, is correct because we saw that through the beavers, through that uh, you know used the, the, the sort of you know effective accreditation, a lot of people who would have voted before in the past did not vote. Were not qualified to vote. They were not cleared to vote. There were instances where I've heard that beavers were not used in the north and that children actually ended up voting, as has always been the case there. Uh, but even then, that was minimal because if you if you look at the results that were posted by states like Kano, Katsina, Kaduna, right? These are states that usually will post three to four million votes in elections. This time, they were posting just over a million each, each of them. Lagos State would normally post three to four million. What did it post this time? A total of about one point one million votes right so it means that the beavers actually did work like i said especially in terms of accreditation where it failed was in the INEC officials actually going ahead to upload results as was supposed to be the case by their own uh, regulations so I, I think that um, um, if you look at the spread, you'll find that, that all the candidates, each of them won um, 12 states. Uh, you know, if you add them, um, Peter will be winning the federal capital to be 12, uh, 12, 12, 12, that's 36. And then Kwankwa uh, Seoul won one state in, in Kano. Right. And so, yes, and, and Kwankwasu was not expected to win any states outside Kano because that's where his party is popular. OK. Uh, and so, so the results, to some extent, did reflect the expectations of and strengths of the candidates in each of their regions. But some of them, especially someone like Obi, a, third, a fringe candidate, a third first, um, actually surpassed expectations of even his own people. I mean, I'm talking about his kinsmen and women who never gave him a chance. So that is something to look at. When the results or the actual results get shown, um, or if there's going to be a rerun of the elections depending in, in some states, depending on what the courts decide, everyone will have the final actual figures, we will then begin to crunch those numbers, mine them, and, and then analyze what they really mean in terms of this particular question. But for now, I would say that each pool, their weight, their different regions, and even got 
more uh, than they would. I mean, uh, uh, Tinubu, for example, won in river states. Uh, so it means that, um, you know, it wasn't really uh, about ethnicity or region per se, it was about strength. But uh, that's shady because uh, APC had, has had no strength whatsoever in river states since 1999. So it's amazing how all of a sudden, within 24 hours, uh, then everybody in river states then go to vote for the ruling party, which has never been the case. So these are some of the contradictions in the elections that, you know, time will tell how these are going to be resolved. Those are quite insightful reflections that you've given to us. And there are so many questions and so many areas that I think we need to still keep addressing in this conversation. And we will momentarily when we're talking about how um, there's been a higher voter turnout this time around. But uh, I would also like to ask Janet, who's on standby, how she feels women participation has been represented in that higher turnout. But before we move on to Janet, I'd like you to give your concluding remarks and reflections on these elections. I think that Nigerians won the election. They won because they expressed themselves. And we have seen, uh, someone told me that as of yesterday, there was no widespread celebration across the country like you normally see when a president is announced winner. Right? That's something to think about. So I think that Nigerians won. They braved the odds. They came out, they spoke, they expressed themselves, and they are being changed. I think that uh, Peter Obi has done the right thing by going to courts. I'm pleased that uh, young people have not gone to the streets, uh, you know, to protest because the military people that were deployed, the military uh, forces that were deployed by the states to, to certain locations in Lagos, in, 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 in the East country, I do not think were deployed to prevent electoral malpractices as people assumed. Because while these people were there, they either willfully neglected vandalism, rigging, voter suppression, and violence that were perpetrated against ordinary people. And by the way, uh, people were killed. People were shot and killed uh, in some states. You, I'm sure you'd have seen in, on CNN uh, the woman who was stabbed in the eye and, and had to go treat herself and come back to still vote. A pregnant woman died in those states, never came back home uh, when she, she just went to vote. Now, people braved all of these and still stood guard to protect their votes. There are people who went to the polling station seven o'clock on Saturday, will return home seven o'clock the following morning when the, the counting didn't take place. Uh, some stayed till 12 o'clock the following day. This is resilience. Uh, that is That needs to be commended. That needs to be encouraged, right? And that's what I'm trying to do here. So I'm happy that they have not come out to protest. And uh, I think that there is still an opportunity for young people to begin to find ways of calling out those people who have sort of changed them, the INEC, the governors, the beneficiary of this scam, they should be exposed and, and, and think that young people must find new ways of engaging with these people in, to force them to undo what they have done. And this doesn't have to happen, you know, through street protests because they are ready to shoot them down. The best thing to do is to find innovative ways of getting these people to account for what they have done. And I think that the social media space is one place to tell their stories all over the world and to expose these people in whatever ways they can. You know, some kind of digital warfare, if you like, against the oppressors of the people of Nigeria. It needs to happen. And this is one of the reasons why I am a political scientist. I know that people would listen to this podcast and wonder whether I am not biased, whether I'm not taking a position, uh, you know, as, as a Nigerian. Uh, I didn't vote. I don't belong to any political party. I am a scholar. I'm, an, I'm a political scientist, but I'm also a human being. 
day. My name is Christopher Isike, and I'm from Nigeria. And one of the reasons uh, the social sciences is said to not to be a science is because of human indeterminacy. The fact that we bring our values, we bring our biases, we bring our subjectivities into the research that we do. But remove all of that. What I'm saying is that we must get to a point as academics where we begin to speak you know, we, we begin to say things the way they are. I don't even want to call it truth, but call it facts. The facts show, the evidence abound that these elections, the results were doctored. That the elections, there was a lot of voter suppression. There was a lot of vote buying. There was a lot of vandalism or uh, destruction of ballot papers already cast ballot papers were seen littered in the streets in areas where the Labour Party candidate had was strong. Are we supposed to now say, okay, because I want to be neutral, I want to be objective, remove myself from the situation, you know, don't, don't say things the way they are, lie about them and then feel good as an academic? No, the answer is no. We must begin to rethink scholarship in such a way where academics have a social responsibility, have an obligation to, to speak truth to power, to speak facts to power, and to become agents of change through advocacy. And I think that doing this is my way of contributing to ensuring that the average guy on the streets who boosts his life or her life to go vote and was blooded in those elections know that there are people out there who saw and acknowledge what they do and will support them in every way possible. From what Professor Christopher Isike mentioned and what he spoke about, it gives us so much room to to poke holes into the systems and into how the society operates. But what I picked up from the conversation that we had is that there has been a higher turnout this time around. And I am curious to know if this turnout is truly representative or if it reflects a higher woman's participation in the electoral process. With me is Janet Bum here with me and she's from the Center for Human Rights and I'd like her to introduce herself and the nature of the work that she does. Thank you, Tatiana. My name is Janet Bum. I'm a final year doctoral candidate at the Center for Human Rights. And at the Center for Human Rights, I also work as academic associate on the master's program in multidisciplinary human rights. And I'm also editor of the African Human Rights Yearbook. As an activist, that's my academic profile. As an activist, my work in Nigeria involves offering legal services to underprivileged Nigerians, and I do that through my organization, the Network of Pro Bono Lawyers. I believe this is my profile as both an academic and as an activist. Yeah, and I think that's such a perfect profile for us to be having this conversation, because I'd like to hear your thoughts as far as being a Nigerian citizen, a Nigerian woman who is concerned with regards to this electoral process. So we found that this election recorded 18 major candidates contesting in presidential elections. OJ Chichi of the Allied People's Movement, APM, was the only female contestant during this presidential election. Were there other women? Um, did we not hear about them? What's really going on? Where are the women? Um, how come we're not seeing them? playing an important role as far as the electoral process was concerned. I think I want to answer that question with the same way that Buhari answered the question when he was asked where his wife was, when he said she was in the other room. And even Tinubu, when he was um, giving his speech as um, the president-elect, he also mentioned that um, the wife would not be going back to the Senate because she would now be with him and be his house 
wife at home and also be supporting him. And the woman was actually there saying yes in the other room. So I would say Nigerian women are in the other room, but that would be unfair to so many Nigerian women who are constantly out there trying their best and working so hard to ensure that there is political representation for women at both the local, state, and even at, at the national level. So, I mean, I know that in the course of this conversation, I'll delve deeper into the specific roles that so many women, even during the pre-colonial era, in the colonial period, and even post-colonial participation of women, and how some women have also been courageous in coming out and contesting propositions, and some have been successful. So I believe that the general perception, especially in the political sphere in Nigeria, that Nigerian women have a place only in the kitchen is is very unfair, especially to so many women that are out there trying to make a difference in the political. But now it makes me wonder, how come we're not seeing a lot of women representation, or at least a candidate within the presidential elections? Uh, just off the top of my head, Janet, uh, would you know if there was like any form of or what the state of representation is in the parliamentary system, never mind the elections, but in parliament and other governmental structures, do we see women taking a lead and not necessarily a supportive role with how the election and maybe just how the politics in Nigeria takes place? Would you have anything to say about that? Yes, I remember Last year, when we were advocating for the inclusion of about six articles in the gen in the bill, and it, I think it was also still when the electoral bill was also on, we had um, so many women coming out to work and um, actively ensure that there was representation. And of the two houses of um, representation and the Senate, the bills were rejected, by the way. So on top of my head, I think there are just about 29 women represented currently in a set, which makes just roughly about 6% of the entire both houses, that's the Senate and the House of Representatives. And believe me, that is such a low figure. Because when you go back to describing, and when I was preparing for this, it also gave me an opportunity to go back and look at the incredible contributions of women in Nigeria and in the Nigerian political sphere. And I read about Sarah Jubril, who was one of the first women who contested for presidential elections and I never really heard about her. I mean, I heard about Obi Ezekwensili, but before Obi Ezekwensili, there was Sarah Jubri, there was Remy Shonaya. These women were at the fore of ensuring that their voices were heard in the political arena. So, I mean, Chichi may have been in 2023, but before Chichi, there were so many women who had come up. And it also reminds me, I know for my state, and I'm from Benue State in Nigeria, in 20, I think during the 1999 dispensation that was the first democratic um, dispensation that we are currently in now we had the woman speaker and she was the first female speaker of a house of assembly and the first female speaker in the whole of africa margaret Ichen. so these are pioneer women who have contributed in no small measure in women participation and um, just um, promoting the participation of women in nigeria but i would also say that the political arena where someone is ultimately determines their participation in a particular uh, polity. And I'll give an example. I had the time to look at the Electoral um, Act of 2022 of Nigeria. And um, I don't know if they were trying to make it a very neutral participation ground, if I could call it that way. But where I saw women mentioned was, I think, under the part four, 
article 49 or so where they specifically mentioned that women should have separate queues when voting and men and i am like how do you do such a thing in an entire law and you're only concerned with how people stand on the queue to vote and i know people would argue that there is a religious sentiment especially in the northern parts of nigeria where you would have to ensure that uh, there is provision for women but i would also understand that there are some things that are left to common sense and that if you you could take out very important specifications in the law like they did last year where we were calling for about um, a certain percentage for women participation I think it was around 45% or so for women participation and then you're instead putting things like how people should queue for elections that's really outrageous if you'd ask me I think that, that that's something to think about and I'm asking you Janet not as a way to vilify you or to criticize women but I'm also a woman and trying to advocate for more women participation within in political space. So it bothers me a lot to see such developments taking place and not seeing women taking the stage to be leaders within the political framework. I'm sure so many sacrifices were made. You mentioned a lot of women that have been the pioneers of participating in politics. I'm sure that came with so much pushback, so much criticism. And why is it that as women, we are not taking it upon ourselves to take the stage to to do more, to participate and be seen in the political space? Do you think? Apart from what we see on paper, and already you've made a criticism of what the laws and some of the legislative framework mentioned, but do you think Nigeria is committed to improve women participation in politics? No, I do not think so. Um, I mean, if you have a man who was loved or is loved by the people, like someone like Peter Obi, coming out, contesting and not making a headway, then I really believe that women do not even stand a chance in the current dispensation in Nigeria. And I would say that, you know, sometimes when you read about the histories of how women were at the fore of changing main issues in Nigeria, I mean, if you read about the about Women Riot of 1929, about Women Riot, you would see the role of women in challenging the colonial governments you know, and then you read about the Abelkuta women riot. You read about the incredible works that um, Kumilayo Ransom Kuti. You read about Margaret Epo. You read about Janet Mokelu. These are incredible women who were at the fore. And now it beats me that at this particular time, and I think that someone mentioned something when they said that being a Nigerian is actually a full-time job. So even as a Nigerian who who has the means and the acceptance because of the agenda in this respect, a man is finding it so difficult to change anything, then I, I don't see how a woman, women who are historically disadvantaged, especially in the Nigerian system, would even make a stand and anything would change right now. I mean, it may happen in future. I do not want to be the one who would call prophesy evil for Nigerian women but I know that it's going to happen I, I don't just see it happening anytime soon because right now the political sphere is not programmed in any way to support us and let me give also give an example during this election I followed it keenly especially the 2023 election I followed it keenly because I, I remember um, there was a woman Jennifer Efidi who a video was making rounds on social media. She was stabbed by thugs who came to disrupt the electoral process. And this woman went for first aid, came back and stood her ground and ensured that she cast her vote. I don't know if there is a level of commitment. I have not seen commitment. So I, 
And there was another woman in Edo State, Elizabeth Arigo Owe, who was also killed at the polling unit by thugs who came and um, in the process of trying to disrupt the process, they shot her and she's a mother and left the children with the husband and it is just so sad. So when I read these stories, I think the only thing I could say to myself was, when women in Nigeria rise up, when women in Nigeria are ready to take over Nigeria, there is no force strong enough to stop us. Because in time past, we would do more than the Aba women riot or the Abekuta women. We would do so much more that Nigeria would be on a standstill and ensure that Nigerian women are given their due. When this will happen, I do not know. But I am optimistic and I hope that when that time comes, I will be here and I will be at the fore of such a participation to ensure that Nigeria finally gets it right and includes women in the political arena. What can or what should be done to increase women's participation in the electoral process? And tell us what you think as a lawyer, as an activist, and as a Nigerian woman. I would say, of course, I believe in the power of the law to change hearts and minds. But I also believe in the power of advocacy. And I believe for, especially for issues like politics, there is, we can never underestimate the importance of mentorship. And I feel like when more women are strategically mentored and positioned, then, I mean, we could advocate. And we've tried that so many times. I, I know during the bills last year, the wife of the president and the vice president, the wives of the president and vice president, and so many women were, they visited the both houses of, as the Senate and the House of Representatives, you know, to openly canvass for votes for the bills. And I mean, they failed. It was so embarrassing to watch how these people practically listened to them and did nothing about it and still voted against them. So I believe that until we also start, I mean, politics is a game of um, numbers, yes, but it's also a game of calculating and planning properly. So if women would want to also be represented, I believe that we need to be active in the way that um, we not just participate, but also be deliberate about mentorship and this mentorship i'm not it, it could literally not even be from women i mean it could be from men and i, I know that I, I have seen instances where people when i mentioned the issue of mentorship with a friend sometime and they were like no but you see when you mentor a woman she gets into power and she would forget all that you did for her and i said there are so many men who have been mentored who go into power, who forget their godfathers and nothing happens to them. I think you should also give us the right and the opportunity to go into these spaces. And even if we forget, it is fine. At least give us the opportunity to go there and then prove us. Let, let, I mean, we have an opportunity to prove you right or wrong. Because I feel like just not giving someone the opportunity to go into a space where they deserve to be is not a right to even begin with. So I think I would say the part of the law, of course, but also there is a need for advocacy and then mentorship. Because I believe when these three are taken together, hopefully, hopefully, women will be able to organize themselves properly and take up their place in the political sphere in Nigeria. Thanks, Janet. Would you like to give us concluding remarks before we sign off and perhaps your own reflections on how these elections have happened? For these elections, I, I am so happy that I am alive to see 
this level of patriotism from Nigerians. And um, when the movement started, and when I call the movement, I mean the Peter Obi movement, there were so many people who believed that it would amount to nothing. And in a space of less than eight months, he was able to get the level of support that is so organic that I have not seen happen in Nigeria. I mean, we came out for Buhari, but for Peter Obi, it was the, the love was infectious. And I remember monitoring the elections and when the votes were being cast, I saw so many people stand in the rain under the sun just waiting and people were in the cold. I know I, I, I had checked a friend of mine around um, 1 a.m. We, we, were, we were chatting and she told me, oh no, I'm actually at the polling unit. I am waiting for the results to be counted and then uploaded to the beavers. And I am like, that is incredible. So for, for I, I practically believed, by the way, that Peter B was going to win the election because of the commitment that I saw from people who were monitoring the elections on ground and from people who were, you know, posting and, and speaking about it. So I was heartbroken when I saw um, that um, things did not go as, as we had planned. But I, one of the things I was most impressed about, I don't know if I should be impressed or concerned because I was scared that we would have a, an outbreak of violence when the results were announced. I mean, INEC was so wise to announce it around 4 a.m. when we were all sleeping. So we just woke up to the shock of our lives, you know, having a precedent while you were sleeping. And it, it, it felt like Nigeria was in mourning when the election results were announced because there was no jubilation. I think even for people who were supporting APC, there were, I, I could not see people happy or rejoicing. The, the, the mood was gloomy and, and people there was no excitement like you would expect when a president is is announced when a country goes to the post. So I think generally we have not heard the last of it, and I'm I'm hoping that when they go to court, that something positive may come out of it. But on the other note, I think one of the things that I am most impressed about is the fact that a political party like Labour Party who, I mean, we had no idea a party existed like that, all of a sudden comes up and then you have them having senators and House of Representative members, so people going to parliament and it was just incredible. And I think I don't know. I think it was for Enugu State or so. Out of the nine seats, about eight were won by a new party without a structure, as Nigerian politicians would say, that the party had no structure. And then I know for Lagos State, they also won a, a, a House of Reps seat defeat for a new party. So I know that even if the courts do not come out in favor of the Labour Party, I know for a fact that there is hope that in the, at the end of the day, when all, maybe in 2020, I think the next elections will be in 2027, if the momentum that Labour Party used in this particular era, if they continue with such momentum, I believe that the next time they come to the polls, they would not be the opposition party in Nigeria, but they would become the leading party ruling Nigeria and they would dispose of all the old structures that we have currently. So I, I still believe that there is so much that um, um, can be done, but I'm happy there was no violence in the election and I'm happy that people would not go out to be killed like it, it happened during the NSAS and I'm happy that um, people are waiting to hear from the courts on the interpretation of the Electoral Act and also bring evidence to prove the electoral malpractices that happened. So I feel that for that as a whole, that that's victory for democracy because we are not resorting to violence to sort out or express our displeasure. So yeah, I, I would say that there is still hope. This is me being a very optimistic Nigerian as someone who loves Nigeria with all of me and hoping that in the near future, things get better. 
Okay, thank you so much, Janet, for that heartfelt conversation. You brought like calm into it. You brought the passion and the emotion into it. I really loved it. So we took the time to speak to Felucio, the manager of the litigation and implementation unit of the Center for Human Rights. And what we wanted to find out from him was to get a sense of how he views youth participation in the Nigerian elections, as well as what legal steps could be taken by aggrieved candidates in the election from a democracy and human rights perspective. So Felicia, welcome to the conversation. Please introduce yourself and the nature of the work that you do. Thank you very much, Antatenda. My name is Felicia Adegalu. I work as a manager in the litigation and implementation unit um, of the Center for Human Rights. So my working day in the unit um, focuses on the application of international human rights law to prevent and um, to seek redress for victims of human rights violations before international human rights mechanisms. And also we monitor um, the compliance of states with their international human rights commitment. So in this regard, um, we work with civil society organizations and we engage in building capacities of civil society organizations in their engagement with international human rights system. All right. How do I end the conversation just to say, just to give you the hints that I'm done with what I'm saying here? So can you comment on youth participation in the 2023 Nigerian elections? What have they done to effect change and could they do more? Yeah, I think um, with respect to youth participation in the 2023 Nigerian election, I mean, um, and this is me speaking based on the national elections, um, which is the one that have been done at the moment. It's quite interesting uh, because the youth have actually, you know, effected noticeable changes in the election by really changing the dynamics of the election and also some of the outcome of the results that we have seen with regards to the National Assembly election. So let's say, generally speaking, before the 2023 election, there've always been this, um, you know, allegation against the youth and the younger generation about political apathy towards national election. And I think one of the strongest allegations has come from the fact that a lot of the time, the youth tend to, you know, participate in election on social media. They talk about these things, but then they don't show up on uh, the day that matters, which is the election day to, you know, participate in the election. So in terms of the you know participation of youth in this election and how they have effected changes from my perspective, I think the first way in which the youth has really influenced the 2023 national election is through active campaign and awareness raising for candidates in the in the national election. You know, the, the youth really engage in active camp campaign and awareness raising for candidates in the um, national election. And I think this was particularly strong for the presidential candidates. You know, there was a lot of debates among the youth about the suitability of the presidential candidates and, you know, they campaign for their preferred choice of presidential candidates. And they really, you know, um, say things to the effect of bringing some sort of accountability even for the candidates by asking for public debate to listen to, to the candidates and they criticize some of the presidential candidates that did not engage in some of these public debates. So they were very you know, vocal and active in, in that regard. And I think the second way in which the youth have um, influenced the 2023 election is through voters' enlightenment and education. So the, the, the youth in the 
2023 national election before the election itself, they engage in voters' enlightenment by informing citizens about the importance of actively participating in the election. The youths urge eligible voters in the country to get the permanent voters' card, which is the card that we use in Nigeria for voting. And um, they also encourage people to come out and vote for, for the candidates of their choices. The active participation and the active campaign and the voters' enlightenment and education really set up a very interesting scene for, for the election date itself. The stakes were really high before the election. And of course, the third way in which the youth really effect change in the 2023 national election is by turning around the story that has been made against the youth, which is the fact that they don't actually participate in the voting process itself on the day that matter. So um, as we witnessed in the 2023 election, the youth really you know, came out in um, en masse um, to vote for their candidates. And the active participation of the youth in the voting process really gave us something that we've not seen before in the Nigerian political scene, which is the emergence of a third force within the Nigerian national election at the presidential level. So before the 2023 national election, I think the APC and the PDP have been the two main parties with, you know, representatives in, with majority of the representatives in the National Assembly. And also they've always been, you know, the two parties to really take into consideration, um, especially for the presidential election. But the 2023 election, election really changed that dynamics and we did have a third force in the form of the Labour Party that emerged with, with, with a third candidate. And, um, you know, it's quite interesting because the third candidate really had over 6 million votes and they have a um, majority of the vote in about 12 states, which is really the equivalent of the number of states that the other two leading um, two main political parties that we've had before now, the APC and PDP, did have in the election. And um, it's also striking that the 6 million votes um, that was amassed by the third um, candidate of the Labour Party is, you know, around 2 million shy of the 8 point something million votes that the eventual or at least the declared winner of the election gathered in the election. So it, it really, you know change um, the complexity of the Nigerian electoral landscape. And just to also mention the one of the outcome of this active participation. So the, the Labour Party, which before now has historically not have significant presence in the International Assembly, currently at the moment, of course, some of the results of the election have been disputed. But at the moment, they have well over 35 representatives in the House of um, Representatives um, in the National Assembly. And they have, I think, about nine members in the, in the Senate as well. So that really uh, means that there's going to be a very interesting setup for the next democratic dispensation in Nigeria where we would have, as opposed to the APC-PDP dichotomy, we would definitely have the presence of a third force in that in that National Assembly that could also, you know, improve the checks and balances that are required for effective democratic um, governance. And a final point that I would make about the influence or the positive change that the youth have brought into the election is the fact that the youth have also been able to act as a 
accountability agents during the election period. So the youth, through you know their understanding of technology, social media, documentary evidence, they played a role in keeping up with transparency of the results, questioning the credibility of some of the results, you know, disputing some of the evidence and produced by the Independent National Electoral Commission of Nigeria and showing all of this, you know, really contesting some of the results and questioning the credibility of the results, reminding INEC of the need to comply with some of its promises to ensure an electronic compliance election, which would strongly improve the credibility of the national election. And, you know, beyond that, um, as part of accountability agent, um, the youth have also, you know, reminded some of the candidates that emerge winners on the basis of the participation of the youth that it's not going to be business as usual and if they don't live up to some of the expectations then um, they can forget about the next election. So um, the youth have really been able to really shake the political dynamics and I think it's quite an interesting one and beyond that as we are still talking the disputed results and the subsequent post-electoral processes, the youth are actively following up on these processes and it will really be interesting to see how things go, you know, um, going forward. So having said that, in terms of the positive influence, I think from my reflection, I would say there's maybe one or two, you know, things that um, could be better on the part of the youth. I think the first one, which is unfortunate, it's not something that a lot of us would have control over, is some of the negative role, unfortunately that um, some youth played in, you know, helping some of the um, contestants in the election to unfairly influence the result of the election through different inappropriate means like bullying of voters, physical violence, and um, intimidating and threatening election officers. I think um, that was a bit unfortunate. Um, and it's something that hopefully we can do better on that. Then um, I think the second issue is about the pattern of voting um, that is noticeable in the national election. The pattern of voting seems to just uh, be based on preferred political parties without consideration for the potentials of some of the individuals, especially in the National Assembly that were voted for by the youth. And it's understandable because I think there is just this general dissatisfaction and people are tired of the two leading parties. But at the same time, there's still the need to, you know, exercise a cautionary approach to voting. And I don't think it's really um, a very good idea to just give some sort of block vote to a political party across all of the different categories of election, the Senate, the House of Rep and the presidential candidates, simply because there's a preference for, for the political party and the need to get rid of some of these dominant two political parties because in any event they do have they may have you know some credible candidates but then because there's really no filtering through these candidates and it's just about voting for a preferred political party then the the desired results may not may not be there so i think those um for me my reflections on the influence of the youth on the 2023 national election Thank you for those wonderful reflections, Felicia. And I think my next question, perhaps I'd like you to just help us as listeners and the, everyone else who might be tuned into this episode to, I guess, see the link in terms of what legal remedies are available. You talked about certain violations that took place throughout the elections. Now, as human rights practitioners, there are 
remedies that we can use to address those issues using the law. So we find that the one of the tasks or the work of the litigation and implementation unit is to strategically use the law through the instrumentality of judicial and quasi-judicial institutions to enforce human rights, prevent violation of human rights, and or seek redress for human rights violations. Since the results in the election are being contested and there's so many irregularities involved, as a manager of the litigation and implementation unit of the center, what are the legal steps that could be taken by aggrieved candidates and aggrieved parties in the election from a form of democracy and human rights perspective? What can they do using the law? Um, so thank you very much, um, Tatenda. And um, I think it's, it's quite interesting because there's a lot of um, dissatisfaction, you know, um, grievances with with the outcome of the election. And um, I, I think um, going back to, you know, the, the role of the youth, the youth have really been, you know, actively trying to, you know, collate evidence of some of the irregularities. And um, I think uh, as things stand, we definitely expect that some of the results of this election, particularly the presidential election, would definitely um, would definitely be contested. I think that's that's what um, all of the indications are telling us. So within the ambit of the law, of course, I mean, um, there've been other things that like protests and um, you know demonstrations. I I think these are fine within um, people's um civil and political right but in terms of really seeking redress um from you know the perspective from a very legal perspective now um the recourse really is for the aggrieved candidates to you know challenge the um election before the election tribunal um in accordance with the electoral act um 2022 um, nigeria electoral act of 2022 so um under section 120 of the electoral act of 2022 there are three main grants in which um under which an election can can be challenged so the first one is um if um if the person that was declared as the winner um at the time of the election was not qualified to contest the election and um, the second grant is if um, if the election was invalid by reason of corrupt practices or non-compliance with the provisions of the Electoral Act of 2022. And the third grant um, is if the person declared winner was um, not duly elected by majority of lawful votes um, cast at the election. So now, if this three, if any of these three grants have um, been successfully proven um, before an election tribunal, then um, there are a couple of options, there are a couple of remedies um, that the, um, that can be given by the election um, tribunal. And this, um, however, depends on the grant for which the election um, has been, um, you know, um, the election has been declared invalid um, by the election tribunal. So if the election tribunal, if it's the, um, if the election tribunal generally um, determines that the election was not, um, that the person that was elected was not validly elected, um, generally speaking, the tribunal can nullify the election and order the um, independent National Electoral Commission to conduct a fresh election within 90 days of of that of that decision of course that would depend on if the decision is not appealed or if um 
let's say in the case of the presidential election, if it's the final appellate court um, with jurisdiction, which would be the Supreme Court in this in this regard. But um, I think some of the um, interesting remedies, or that's a general one, there could be a rerun of the election. But then again, um, if I think the the interesting one is that which I think might really, um, you know, based on some of the allegations that we have at the moment and the fact that um, people are trying to produce, which is that the person that was declared winner was not duly elected by um, majority of lawful votes cast at the concluded um, election. Then in, in that regard now, um, if the election tribunal did agree with, you know, the aggrieved parties and they determined that the current um, um, winner of the election as declared by INEC was um, was not validly elected on the ground that it did not score majority of the valid votes cast at the election, then um, the election tribunal would then, you know, declare as elected, as being the winner of the election, the candidate um, who scored the highest number of valid um, votes cast at the election and satisfy um, the requirement of of the constitution and the electoral act as as it relates to to the election so those are the um options available to the aggrieved candidates and those are the um remedies that can come from a successful challenge of the um of the election before the election tribunal that is very insightful indeed and as we wrap up the conversation, Felicia, could you please give your concluding remarks and reflections of the elections, considering that you're a Nigerian lawyer um, and you're also well-versed in these issues. Could you just tell us your reflections um, of what you think as a youth as well? What do you think of these elections? What do you make out of um, these elections? Well, I think um, for me, if I'm going to um, speak generally about what um what I make out of the out of the election um, as a Nigerian, um, first of all, I, I think it's um, it's a bit um, disappointing, generally speaking, in terms of some of the logistical challenges that were obvious um, in terms of the of the election. And um, I mean, as much as the facts of um, some of these irregularities and non-compliance are disputed, but um, there are some that are clearly not in dispute because even by the admission of the independent national electoral commission they did you know admit that um they they, they failed nigerians in in terms of one key thing that um everyone was really looking up to to you know change um the, the dynamics of of the national election and that is the whole idea of having um a very um electronic um electronically driven election in a sense if you like you know the there was a couple of things um that the electoral act of 2022 and also the INEC through its um, um procedural rules um did you know promise um nigerians and um to really assure us of the credibility of, of of the election you know um which is mainly two um two things like the use of the bamoda um, voters accreditation system the bivas machine to upload results of of election so um it's it's quite um problematic um for me because the um one of the one of the 
um, one of the main things um, or one of the problems, the challenges that we've had in the past with respect to the credibility of elections in Nigeria is the fact that um, the result, it's, it's actually the process of trans transmitting results from polling units and from um, from the state to the, to the um, headquarters of the INEC office in Abuja. That's where a lot of manipulations, you know, of these results do happen. And um, the, you, you know, the use of the bimodal voters accreditation system and also the um, INEC election reimporter, the IREF, was really supposed to, you know, um, stop this this challenge because then this this was supposed to allow people to see um, from their polling unit that the electoral um, officers did upload the results as you know um, contained um, and as witnessed by everyone to to the um, to the general um, server of INEC and also the election viewing portal was supposed to allow people to view you know results in real time. So that there's really no room for manipulation of of the electoral results, but um, you know it's quite disappointing that um, despite you know a lot of money being allocated um, to INEC for 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 logistical um, issues and you know putting these things in place and um, all of the time that they have to prepare for this, um, they failed woefully you know on, on on this on these two things and i think I, I don't think there's an excuse um for for the for the independent national electoral commission and i think um they just need to to do better going forward in that regard but in terms of you know the youth i think it's quite um impressive i think what um it's really one of the you know um one of the lights at the end of the tunnel for us and um i think the youth in a sense are really showing that um it's not going to be business as usual for our political leaders and um the fact that they've always been this notion that um they can do however they want to do they can you know conduct their business without accountability i think that notion is disappearing because one strong indication of this um this whole thing is that after the um, national elections now i mean the gubernatorial elections will be coming up um in about a week time um a week from now some of the gubernatorial candidates that um i mean the current incumbent governors that have not really been serious with their campaigns and have thought it's going to be business as usual have now realized that this is not how um it's not going to be business as usual they have been actively campaigning quote and unquote on social media, you know, trying to reach um, the so-called constituency that they've always thought was not, you know, relevant. So it's it's a it's quite um, a remarkable turnaround for 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 our election. And um, I think yes, there are still some of the dark um, things um, in the election in terms of irregularities and some of these other challenges. But I think by and large, um, the the youth have done really well by increasing um, the stakes. For, for political leaders in Nigeria going forward. Thank you, Felucio. That was perfect. Thank you. This has been Africa Rights Talk with me, Tatenda Musina Hamai. Join us in our other episodes as we continue to explore other human rights issues. <laughs>